This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Emily Mozakurai, founder and CEO at 427, that was acquired by Moody's Investor Service. And this episode will mostly talk about working with strategic investors, what are the pros and cons, because most people think that you know, strategic investor is always good, and Emily will tell us why is it not always the perfect solution. We'll also talk about reaching out to investors if you're not sure which category your startup belongs to. So if you're thinking that you're disrupting a new, uh, completely new industry that probably doesn't even exist, what should you do in that case? Because that's exactly what Emily did. And then we'll, of course, talk about fundraising, specifically uh, fundraising for females, because, you know, uh, it's still a sexist world. So we'll touch on to that as well. So if you're a female founder, keep listening until the end, making sure <laughs> that the retention rates are high. So Emily, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on 427. Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, so I'm French, I've uh, been in the US for over 15 years now, and I have a background in political science and public policy. I've spent most of my career working on environmental issues and climate change, so I'm not exactly your typical take founder profile. Um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I, I think that plays a role somewhere. Um, and so how did I find myself founding a company, might you ask, a startup? Um, I, I worked on climate policy, on carbon markets for a number of years, and I realized that we as a society were not moving fast enough and that climate change was catching up with us. And um, and so I saw a, a need, a market opportunity um, to help companies prepare for the physical impacts of climate change. Um, I knew from my work that there was a lot of science and research and models that could help support decisions around how do you prepare, what is your exposure to flood, to storm, to drought, and, and what might be the right thing to do to prepare for that. And mm -hmm. I was surprised to discover that companies and investors did not have access to this kind of information, not because it was expensive or anything, it's all open source data, but because it was really hard to use. Um, and so that's why I found it for 27, and that's uh, our core expertise, is we're, um, we're translator, right? We we're, we're bring uh, science to markets, we uh, extract and process and uh, package climate data and science to help corporations and investors make decisions around mm -hmm. climate change and risk management. Nice, that's really interesting. And be before we move on to Actually, no, you know what, let's move on to that topic right away. So how do you reach out to investors if you're not sure which category do you belong to? So, for example, in your case, I'm not even sure right now, you know, as you got acquired by, by a financial firm, if you are belonging more to a financial field or to uh, more of an environment field. So how do you, when you first created this company and you decided to start reaching out to investors, how did you find them? Yeah, that, that is a great question. And I, I asked myself that question for a long time. Um, it's, it can be challenging because uh, investors tend to see the world in um, predetermined buckets that they're familiar with. They invest in tech or in ag or in clean tech or in health. Um, and while we work on climate change, we're not clean tech. Um, and, and there are not a lot of 
startups that are environmental startups. And, and the thing that we were focused on, this idea that we need to adapt to the impact of climate change, was a new idea for a lot of, uh, of folks that we talked to, investors and, and corporates. Um, and so it was hard um, because then they didn't know what to do with us. Um, and what we found is, it, you know, we, we did a little bit of a dual approach in that on the one hand, it was important to us and it remains important to uh, create the space and the market. And, and there are investors that we know well who are just really focused on creating adaptation as an investable space or industry. At the same time, practically speaking, we needed money before the world came around to <laughs> seeing adaptation as an investable space. And so um, once we figured that fintech, um, that are the segments that we were focused on, the, the market that we were focused on was the, the sort of the right anchor for us, then we uh, were able to describe ourselves as environmental fintech. And then you, I, I could see people click and be able to understand where we fit. And that helps get the conversation started with investors. Got it, got it. Mm -hmm. well, let's, let's move on to how was your fundraising process? So back in 2012, how how is it different from 2020? You know, it's been eight years. Things completely changed now. Uh, what do you think, where should founders now start, specifically now during the coronavirus? You know, they can't go to normal means. They can't go to the meetups anymore. What's your recommendation to them right now? Well, so I think there's a lot of um, efforts, um, as far as I can see, uh, made by, you know, the folks who run the ecosystem that tries to connect startup to investors. And so the accelerators and the, uh, the events, the networking, you know, it's never going to be the same on, uh, online and on a video conference than it is when you're in person, but we're also not going to be in this situation forever. So, um, I know not everybody has the luxury to wait another three or six months, but the reality is it will get a lot, uh, a lot easier. Um, Going back to how do you how do you approach investors? Uh, introductions <laughs> really help, and so networking, 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 networking with other entrepreneurs, networking with investors, network with your professors, to find yourself an accelerator, find yourself advisors. Right? Um, mm -hmm. That there there is that. Um, it's not fun. I mean, when I first saw your invitation, to be fair, to participate in that podcast, my first reaction was, oh, yuck, no, I'm done with fundraising. Never want to talk about it again. Um, it sucks. Fundraising really sucks. You pitch, you know, 20, 30, 50 times over, and you, you get blank stares from people who don't understand what you do, and it's, it's hard. Perfect. That's a perfect description. I love that. And thanks a lot for being here. You know, I know uh, on our pre-interview call, <laughs> you said that you don't really like fundraising. I really appreciate that you're here talking about that pain to help other founders go through this pain easier. So let's talk about the other part of fundraising. Fundraising from strategic investors. I personally recommend that strategy a lot because I believe that a strategic investor is someone who can give you so much more than money. And, you know, it's not like VCs who say that, oh, yeah, we'll give you a lot more than money. We will give you expertise, et cetera. The, the strategic investors are really giving you that strategic experience. So what do you think are the pros and cons of, of uh, sure. funding yourself through strategic investor? 
Yeah, and, and maybe I'll speak a little bit to how we came to working with a strategic investor and then uh, maybe some, some broader lessons learned. Um, I, I pitched to God knows how many VCs <laughs> and, uh, and I just kept being befuddled and, and, and not understanding the disconnect between the blank stare that I was getting from a number of smart and lovely people who just didn't see, you know, any future for my company. And the fact that at the same time, we had clients, we had interests, we were pulled into all kinds of events, we had the White House at the time, uh, previous White House, obviously, but saying, hey, this is great, you guys should come speak about your work. And I could not reconcile those two things, the obvious market traction and the lack of traction with investors. Um, and the, the sort of the, the waterfall moment, the, the, the watershed moment for me was um, the day that I pitched to a female investor who specializes in investing in female founders, especially with uh, or companies with a social focus, climate change being one of her big themes. And she didn't give me a blank stare, but she walked me through the numbers as to why the way my company was set up, the growth path that we were on, our margins were just never going to work for her because she had investors herself, right? That she had promised a certain turnaround uh, return on the on investment. Um, and, and so what I learned was that VCs are really looking for a very specific type of startups, which are, and, and this may be obvious to a lot of your listeners, but the very high growth startups. Um, and so they're willing to take a lot of risk because what's interesting to them is out of a portfolio of 10 company, maybe one becomes extremely successful and it doesn't really matter what happens to the other one. But for me as a founder, I'm, I, it matters to me what happens to my company, right? And I'm not necessarily interested in having the biggest growth in the world and, you know, crazy tur uh, turnover or whatever. I was more interested in us being able to grow and do what we wanted. We had a mission. We had a market. We were, in a way, less risky, um, but also with a, with a lesser growth potential, which I was comfortable with personally. Um, and so... And so then realizing that working with folks who understood our market and corporates as investors don't have the same expectations as uh, VCs, they're also going to look for safer investments um, in that they're not willing to see <laughs> 10 of their portfolio companies go belly up in the next five years. That's not what they're investing in for. <laughs> they're investing because they want the solution, they want it to work, they want it to add value for the corporation. So. There is a world outside of VCs, and VC funding is not for everybody, and you're still a legitimate entrepreneur if you get funding from somewhere else. And that's really important. There's something psychological here about the role model of the Silicon Valley and this idea that if you're not that, then you're not part of the cool kids. And I, uh, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, we did get some uh, really sound advice uh, before we engaged in conversations with, with strategic investors and, and that I want to relay here, but is to be really mindful about what are the terms that you set with your uh, strategic investor, right? So it could be it could be anybody in your value chain. It could be a supplier, it could be a partner, it could be, you know, a competitor or who you thought you might you know, take over and, and kick out as the incumbent, but maybe really they're your best partner. Um, it could be a client. And in any of those um, uh, relationships, you're going to need to figure out, make sure that you agree on terms that allow your company to continue to grow 
uh, to its full potential. Um, so say if it's, uh, if it, if you're taking a client as a strategic investor, then make sure that they're not, you know, the terms that you set with them with regard to access to data, or if in my case, this is the world I live in, right? Or what they have access to, how it's positioned with regard to your other clients doesn't scare away your clients. And then make sure you're very clear as to what the exit is, the exit strategy is for both parties. Is it understood that at the end of the day, you really want to uh, be fully acquired by this company? Do you really want to keep your um, the options open in terms of going elsewhere? That needs to be discussed and, and really figured out in terms of, uh, of, of uh, terms of the agreement up front. But then if you do, you have a, <laughs> a big, powerful, assumedly, right, partner. Um, you want to target a very large company. Those are the companies that have the funds to invest and they have M&A office. They know how to do that, their development office. And then they have distribution networks and they may have, you know, all kinds of things that you like. Maybe they have deeper tech or maybe they have um, a marketing and branding department or who knows what they can bring, right? They can be your first client and help shape your product. So there's a lot of, of uh, great, great benefits from working with strategic. Absolutely. And that's exactly the reason why I have the whole uh, section called uh, alternative sources of capital, which is right about that, you know, uh, buying something besides VC funding, uh, because I think that VC is definitely not the only option. So you touched on a topic that I wanted to go a little bit deeper in, and it's uh, you pitched to a female founder who really explained to you what's the problem with your company is. And I wanted to talk about this uh, female fundraising. So I know that. No, startup world is still wait 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 but let me let me rephrase that she didn't tell me what the problem with my company was she told me why my company was not a good fit for dc funding right no and that framework is important there's no problem with our company it's just not a good fit for vcs (laughs) and that may be a quality (laughs) perfect that's that's i'm sorry for not listening carefully enough (laughs) not to not for phrasing my, my my sentences carefully enough so my question still remains, you know, uh, female fundraising is tougher than uh, fundraising for males because, you know, it's still a pretty sexist world. So, for example, I'm really proud of that number of mine. I have over 20 percent of listeners who are females and I'm proud of that fact. And the fact that I'm proud of that fact makes it really sexist. So what's your recommendation to those 20 percent female listeners of mine? What would you recommend them doing first? Who should they reach out to? Should they try to seek for specifically uh, female-founded uh, VCs or angel investors, or should they should follow the normal track? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I I hope this uh, it applies and is helpful to anybody who experiences discrimination for whatever reason, uh, or who may experience at time doubts about whether they're capable and then the right person to do what they're doing, and that could be any gender, any color, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. just know that everybody goes through this, or at least certainly I I, I did, and a lot of people do. Um, I. I haven't really encountered sort of blunt sexism in the way that you can read about it, the way that we're, I mean, uh, Berkeley a little removed from the Silicon Valley. So maybe that, that helps, but I, I have wondered a number of times whether sort of a hi- hypothetical male version of me would have been, uh, would have been more successful in re- raising money from a certain type of investors. Right. And, and something that I found 
interesting was actually the same female uh, investor um, once uh, on a panel explaining that from her perspective, women uh, investing in female founders were great because women were much more conservative in their projection. They didn't have this kind of brash, we're going to grow by two million X, you know, times what we have right now. And so they were more reliable, sort of <laughs> more profitable investments. Um, and, and I think that might be true. I was never comfortable putting projections in front of investors that I didn't truly believe in and, and that felt reasonable to me. And sometimes to raise money, you know, there is a game, right? And, and being reasonable um, when you have someone on the other side of the table who assumes you're not being reasonable and they're going to discount everything you say by a lot, then uh, is, is part of the disconnect. Um, and then generally, I, I will say, try to find investors who have that kind of specialization, not because you need to be constrained to receiving, uh, you know, if you're a woman, money from women or whatever, but um, those investors will have advice and pointers, and they can also be a source of uh, introductions to other uh, funds and investors that might be suitable for you. Perfect. I got it now. So uh, I actually interviewed recently several female founders as well. Not female founders. They're scouts for several VCs here in uh, Los Angeles. And the other one, I think, is in Austin. I'm not sure where the second one is, but uh, the point remains. Great answer. And you mentioned another thing earlier on in this episode, which is you know discussing with a potential investor everything about the exit strategy. So were you aiming for an exit from the day one or did it just you know, happen naturally? Um, so in the grand scheme of things, it was clear to me that 427 was always aiming for an acquisition and not for an IPO. Um, we were a proof of concept that there was demand in the financial sector for the type of data, climate data that we provide. Um, and to me, it was clear that the fastest way to disseminating this data and to having the broadest reach, the broadest impact, which as a mission-driven <laughs> uh, company was important to us, that we should do that through an established financial data providers. And so we had a short list. Um, the, the conversation, the, 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 the acquisition from last year, um, originally what was sort of the long tail of, uh, trying to fundraise, um, what I described earlier of realizing that VCs were not good. Okay. So VCs are not good because we're not risky enough, but we're too risky for banks, right? And so then that leaves us with strategic and for strategic. Um, they ask themselves the same question, right? If they invest in a small company with a product or a service that they're very interested in, they just kind of want to own it. <laughs> they're mm -hmm. not really interested in uh, having a stake in a while and then walking away. So um, so it, it was a natural evolution of the discussion that it went from. Uh, so we received a majority investment uh, from Moody's. Um, but, but there is an understanding that we're going to be part of Moody's for the long term. Mm -hmm. Got yeah, that, that definitely answers my question. And another thing that I forgot to ask you about in terms of fundraising. So most people, most founders actually have either financial or technical backgrounds. And you are a non-technical and non-financial person. Do you think that affected your fundraising process? Have you heard any investors having concerns about that? Yeah, so I definitely know of investors who set up front, look, we don't invest, you know, when there isn't a technical co-founder. Um, 
and uh, and I understand and certainly for us the the moment that we were able to bring uh, people in the team who had the right level of, of technical you know skill set that was the big turning point. I will say on the other hand that I've been in a number of accelerators where you spend a lot of time talking about how you need to get out of the building and talk to customers and understand the product market fit and are you solving a problem and I find it a little bit ironic because uh, we started from what is the problem, talking to clients, what does the market need, and then we built a technology solution, right? Not the other way around. And so there is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you expect the founder is always going to be the technical person and you don't recognize the value of people who really understand the market. Then you're gonna have <laughs> you're gonna have that that dis- disconnect at times, right? So, um, I think a number of other investors saw the value of of uh, having the company led by someone who understood the market and really drove the technology to meet the market needs. That's perfect. Finally, I hear someone doing it the right way, you know. But here, I want to, <laughs> to ask you a follow up on what you just said, which is bringing technical people with technical expertise. When exactly did this happen? Did it happen after you raised some money or were you actually able to bring them early on when you had, you know, just idea, some traction maybe, and only then you raised money? So what's the, what's the, um, time, time, uh, how do you say this? Time. <laughs> what was the timing? <laughs> time. Yeah. What was the timing? Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is something that we struggled with for, for a while. Um, because there is an element of if you're not part of that world, you don't have a network, you don't have the right people. And there are, you know, matchmaking, you know, websites where you can meet your ideal CTO, um, which I, I didn't engage with. Um, it was definitely a blocker to raise money for good reasons. And at the same time, we needed money to hire someone of the right caliber. Um, it was resolved for me, thankfully, by um, the sort of the, the ideal <laughs> co-founder uh, coming in a little late. He's not a co-founder, but saying, hey, this is my skill set. I believe in your mission. How can I help? Right. And then we were able to have that person go see investors and, and, and then things fell together. That's really interesting. And and. How do you find that person? Do you have advice for founders specifically to find other co-founders? So one of the questions that I get pretty frequently is, you know, how do I find a technical co-founder or a financial co-founder? Where should I look for them? Are there some probably applications that help you match with the co-founders? Um, I, I don't know that I have great advice. I know there are the websites that will help you find your match, right? And and I don't know if there are local, there's quite a few. In the in the San Francisco Bay Area, there are a lot of events uh, for startups and, and opportunities to meet and you go to hackathon and you meet people. Um, mm-hmm. There's an element of, of luck and of working your network. In our case, what works is, um, uh, you know, our work getting some traction uh, in media, in social media reports and analysis that we did that uh, uh, got some publicity. And so that attracted uh, attention from people with a certain talent and skill set who said, oh, this is a cool company. I wonder, oh, and they're just down the street. Let me see if I can be part of this. Right. So that's how uh-huh. we've recruited a lot over the years is people 
knocking at the door and saying, I believe in your mission. I really want to help climate change. What you guys do is really cool. Um, do you have room for me? And sometimes it's, it's worked out great. And other times we didn't have a role for that person, but um, that's how that's how it's worked for us. That's really interesting. And publicity is really important part, but if you're not you know, getting any uh, public attention, hackathons is actually a great place to find technical co-founders. A lot of bright people go there, especially for, you know, uh, university-specific hackathons. So I know for sure that UCLA does, I think, hackathons like every quarter or something like that. So if you're looking for a technical co-founder, that's that's a great advice from Emily. Go to hackathons. That's a, that's a great place. So last thing that I wanted to discuss with you is it's not even a discussion. It's the request for a call to action. You know, that's the thing that I've started doing recently with all my speakers, and it's the small thing that you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over. So what is that one specific action that they need to take as soon as this, as, as we say goodbye to each other? Um, well, I, I'm going to say go home and spend time with your friends and family and give yourself a little bit of slack because you're, I'm going to guess, working really, really hard, long hours and worrying about your business and trying so hard and there's a lot of expectations and goals for when you start a business as an entrepreneur. So, um, yeah, it's chill. Right? Uh, <laughs> ask, ask yourself what you want for your company and for yourself. Ask yourself what will make your company grow into a business that you're going to be happy with over the long run. And um, focus on what will serve your company and what will serve you as an individual best and, and not the sort of this uh, fantasy of what a tech startup must be to be successful. There's there's a lot of ways to be successful as an entrepreneur. And uh, yeah, be proud of what you're accomplished and, and you know, keep up the good work. <laughs> I think your advice is not quite right for these times. You know, when everyone's staying home, saying people go home, it's not, <laughs> not the best thing to say, you know? <laughs> Let but, me rephrase that then. Embrace being home with your family. Perfect. <laughs> there That's will be theory. many more times where you are in conference <laughs> and events than in the office for long hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you, but only partially. I believe that if you're not quite happy with your work, with what you've accomplished yet, probably you should work more. And then once you feel that, you know, today I've done a lot. Today I've reached out to 20 clients. I'm good. I've done you know, everything to do this company better, uh, to bring to success. So I believe in that. And by the way, that's that's my advice for you. Find a goal for a day, small steps. Don't like think that you're going to call 100 clients because it's impossible. Make a list of 10 clients that you want to call or 10 prospects, you know, that you want to call and just do that. And if you're done, perfect. You're good to go. Do whatever you want to do. And on this note, on this great advice from me and from Emily, <laughs> we'll wrap it up. Thanks a lot, Emily, for taking your time to participate in fundraising radio. I think that was really insightful episode. Really tons of tons of great insights here. Thanks a lot for that. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>